Do you feel politically homeless, lost in the chaos of modern politics, not sure who to believe? Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. Democrats call him a Republican. Republicans call him a socialist. He is Stephen Reynolds, the man in the middle. Welcome to the Man in the Middle podcast, season two, episode six. I'm Stephen Reynolds, your host, recording today from my private residence located here in Rutherford County, Tennessee, the heart of the great volunteer state, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Well, folks, I know that, uh, that we're all struggling out there and there's a lot of uncertainty. And uh, I just want to say thanks to all the people that are following the rules and doing the right thing of what our leaders are asking us to do right now. We know that um, uh, we've got a long way to go before we get through all of this, but uh, I, I believe in the American people and I believe in our ability uh, to overcome uh, this hurdle that we're all facing right now. So thanks for tuning in folks. And we're glad to bring you this podcast again this week. I'd like to thank WGNS radio and my producer, Mr. Dalton Barrett, for doing such a good job in making this podcast still possible, even though we are all practicing the isolation recommendations. You know that, folks, there's one thing that hasn't stopped during all of this entire health emergency. And neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds Obviously, folks, I'm talking about the United States Postal Service, and I'd like to give a special shout-out to all of the postal workers, many of whom are veterans of this country, have already served this country uh, in the military. But a special shout-out to the United States Post Office. We support you, and uh, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that there's a United States Post Office in 2021. Uh, as long as the history of this country, uh, we've had a post office, and we're going to make sure that that continues. Um, that's that's my pledge to all of the Postal Service uh, workers that are out there today. We've got a great show lined up. Mr. Andy Dickey's going to be joining us again. We're going to talk about the Post Service, and, of course, we're going to talk about the COVID-19 health emergency that's around us right now along with some opinions on the economy. Thanks again for joining the Man in the Middle podcast. I'm Stephen Reynolds, your host, and we'll be right back. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Man in the Middle podcast is being recorded remotely from two separate locations. Due to this fact, you may notice some dips or drops in audio quality. We're sorry about that, but we are thankful that you're still here listening. Welcome back to the Man in the Middle podcast, season two. I'm Stephen Reynolds, your host. And joining me today is our uh, Man in the Middle podcast regular, Mr. Andy Dickey. Andy, thanks for coming back today. Hey, thanks for having me. 
Well, Andy, I know uh, uh, obviously a lot of folks are talking about the uh, health crisis that's going on, and we will get to that. But there's something else that I'd like to talk about and take a little bit different angle at at some of the news out there today. And I know that this is something that, that you have some knowledge about, and that's the United States Postal Service. Uh, Andy, um, let's talk about the, the post office and what's going on with the post office. Uh, give us a little history and tell us how uh, – give us a history of your connection to the United States Post Office. Well, like most things, I'm sort of an armchair expert. I'm not a real expert on anything, but I know a little bit about a, a lot of things. And the post office is one of those things uh, by virtue of my father having been a letter carrier for over 30 years – uh, in Nashville, he was uh, he did ten years active duty in the U.S. Army. A big chunk of that time spent in Vietnam, and then sixteen years in the Guard. And when he got off active duty, he got a job in the mailroom at the IRS. And at that time, you could transfer from the mailroom at the IRS to the post office, and and that's what he did. And he started at the IRS in 1979 and moved over to the post office in 1981. And I want to say that he retired in 2012 or 13, something like that. So he would have to call into WGNS and, and, and correct me on that. Um, it's, it's an interesting job. I think we've heard a lot of criticism in the, in the, uh, from certain political circles for years and years and years. And I think people, there's a lot of confusion around the post office, but just to kind of give you the short history, the founder is, is, widely believed to be Benjamin Franklin. He was the the postmaster general even before the United States was a thing back when we were still British subjects. I see you laughing there. <laughs> uh, and um, people have to realize that it's uh, it's it's the post office is created by the US Constitution. So it's in and I may get this wrong, it's in Article one section eight. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, the quote is to establish post offices and post roads. And this part of the constitution is the same place where the, where the military is set up. So it's, it's a very important thing. I mean, uh, one way to look at it is we had, we were, we established the post office before we established freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. So, uh, because those were amendments, if you remember back, uh, from school. So it's a big deal in our country, um, it's not something there's been a lot of talk about doing away with it unless we change the constitution. We're really not going to be doing away with the post office anytime soon. There have been some tactics and some tricks played to sort of put it in some kind of a funding limbo as a tactic for getting rid of it or, or, you know, sort of hobbling it without actually having to change the United States constitution since Ben Franklin founded it, it's it's gone through a lot of changes. Right now, the revenue is, I think, over $70 billion. So if it was a Fortune 500 company, it would be 37th on that list in the USA. And if you look at the global Fortune 500, it would be 99th on that list. Um, it's not really a government agency, so it's self-funded. We haven't done any subsidy of the post office in, in 30 years. Yeah. It's, yeah. Go ahead. Well, Andy, I, I wanted to get to that. So I think that's one of the big questions there. Uh, so if I understand you correctly, there are, are zero uh, government funds uh, going into the United States post office. 
No, no. I mean, it, we've had to bail the post office out in the past. Right. And the last time we had to do that was was 30 years ago. Um, it's it's a funny thing. It's part of the executive branch. Uh, so it's it's actually headed up by the Postal Regulatory Commission, which is a five member board that's appointed by the president and approved by the Senate. Three of those people are Republicans and two of them are Democrats. And it's and I used to live in in Alexandria, Virginia. So in 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 the metro D.C. area and they've got a little office over on New York Avenue. You can go show up there and <laughs> ask them all the questions you want, really. I mean, it's a uh, it's no big mystery. I think what what I find really interesting about all this talk as of late is about rates and different things like that. Um, the president of the United States can phone up the regulatory commission and ask him to raise rates whenever he likes. And that's all it would take, Andy. Is that right? There's no that, act of Congress here. Just the no. president can approve to increase the price of stamps, which would make the post office solvent again. Well, it's not. In, it's funny you use that word because okay. it's not it's not insolvent. OK, um, so there is a there has been. I guess the way you'd, I guess it's a law. I mean, I guess that's the best way to say it. They have a requirement to do something that none of these other Fortune 500 companies have to do, which is they have to pre-fund their retirement benefits 50 years in advance. Okay. Uh, which is not a burden that even any private company has. And right. that happens on a rolling basis. So that that value gets re-amortized in 15-year blocks on a rolling basis. Okay. So in practice, if they were a company, they would be very, very profitable, which is amazing given what they're actually pulling off on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, you can send a letter from Seattle to Key West for 55 cents. Right. And and no, no other service in the world can do it for that cost. I mean, you can't use one of the commercial carriers. I'm not going to give them free advertising here, <laughs> but you can't use one of those commercial carriers. They're not going to send a letter to Key West for 50 cents for you. Is that correct? That is totally correct. And I think the other thing that people forget is they 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 don't understand the scale. So people think, and I like you, I won't name them, but they go to they drive by Memphis Airport and they see one of those companies, all their planes taken off and landing. And it's just there. You're in all of it. But to put it into perspective, both of the two major carriers that we have in this country, the private ones, the U.S. Postal Service does the equivalent of what they do all year put together in 16 days. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, and the U.S. Uh, just a couple more stats. The U.S. Postal Service touches forty-seven percent of all the mail in the world, okay. and they move that mail one and a half billion miles every wow. year. Wow! Now, one of the things that stands out to me, Andy, and you just pointed out the retirement program for our postal service uh, for the workers. Over half a million veterans work for the United States Postal Service. They are the largest employer of veterans in this country. So, Andy, let me ask you a question. If you don't support the United States Post Office, can you still say you support veterans? No, you cannot. Not at I, all. I agree. 
Not at all. And I, I think the other thing, too, is that when people people love to run the post office down and the post office, as you know, it today was put together or built out by the same people. And, and I hope I can say this on WGNS. The same people that kicked Hitler and Tojo's ass are the same people that built the post office as you know it today. Wow. So it's not only veterans that you're hating on when you say that stuff. You're also hating on the greatest generation. Well, that's that's another fantastic point that you're making there. And and let's just really get down to the root of this, Andy, and the political side of this. Um, it has suddenly this issue with the post office that has come up about, you know, the president is threatening not to fund the post office. They're saying they're going to be out of money this summer. And um, the president is saying he's not going to uh, allow them to increase the rate so that they can get the sufficient funding. But isn't it peculiar that this issue suddenly came up after uh, citizens started demanding uh, to vote by mail uh, this fall? If we're still under this health emergency, there's a lot of people that would like to just mail in a ballot. And there's a lot of pressure on our legislators right now to make that happen. Now, suddenly, if we don't have a post office, Andy, we can't make that happen. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think um, I don't want to give any give too many details that maybe I should not give because, uh, you know, my wife's a dependent. I was a dependent. And so, you know, we're used to seeing the posters about, you know, with the shush, you know, loose lips, sink ships type of poster. So my dad had a, part, a particular job in the military and that particular job is really sought after by the people who did that job. Those types of jobs are really sought after by the post office because your mail is such a private thing. And, and those men and women take your privacy very, very seriously. And not just from, Oh, that's the rule. It's something that they feel very deeply about. And this idea that somehow mail in voting in the hands of these people is somehow insecure is offensive. It, it, it really is. I mean, it's good enough for the IRS. It's good enough for selective service. It's good enough for every business, financial institution. But the only thing it's not secure enough is for the election commission. I mean, that just doesn't Lab wash. results. Yeah, lab results. Yep. I mean, Great people point. do those by phone now, but you know, we're both old enough to remember when you got those in the mail, and that's right. pretty serious news. A- so, absolutely, that that is obviously protected by federal law. Uh, lab result is protected by HIPAA. So, you're, uh, the post office deals with a lot of sensitive documents, um, you know, without any doubt. And so, um, they connect these, our soldiers back home to. Yeah. Yeah. So they I, vote by mail. They vote by mail, but it's not just that. If they want to order something from Amazon, it's the post office that will make sure that it gets to them in Ramstein, Germany, right, or Turin, and, Italy, wherever they are. Andy, is um, do you think that that um, because of this, uh, uh, the, the nature of the the public health emergency that's going on right now and because of the politics that we just talked about a little bit um do you think that the uh, the main theory out there is that there will be this ton of fraud if we go to vote uh, voting by mail that there will be uh, uh small camps set up just to grab people's ballots and vote for the candidate of their choice 
I mean, that really is the theory that's out there. Andy, is there any evidence whatsoever of fraud, of voting fraud by mail that exists that that would back up any of these claims that are being uh, put out there by the folks that are opposing voting by mail? Well, there's a tiny bit of fraud that is discovered in with any type of voting, but it's it's minuscule. Mm-hmm. There are five states already that do vote by mail. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's good enough, and, and in a lot of those states, Republicans and Democrats alike are getting elected that way. So it, it's really not a partisan issue. If you look in, at Ohio, you know, they vote by mail. California, right. they vote by mail. So and the governor of Ohio is a Republican. So and he doesn't have a problem with it, obviously. Right. I, I just take it as in, you know, and, and we do it everywhere, really, given a set of circumstances, even even here in Tennessee. If you're serving in the military and you're away from home, if you're over the age of 60 and you and you have some uh, medical reason why you can't go in and vote. And I just our election commission does a great job. It kills me to compliment. And I've said this before. It kills me to compliment Republicans, but I have to compliment Trey Hargett at the, at the state level, Alan Farley. So to say that there's fraud going on is, is also saying that Alan Farley here in Rutherford County is not doing his job. Trey Hargett is not doing his job. And I'm just not okay with that. Yeah, right. Me either. I, you know, I think the only evidence we have of any fraud was in North Carolina's Western Congressional District recently, uh, where there was an operative that was collecting ballots and marking those ballots for his candidate. And you know what? He got caught, Andy. They all. Oh, he did. Caught. Yeah. And it, and I have to point out, he that was a Republican thing, but it really it's it's irrelevant. Right. You know, there are no the, the actually that is a good news story in my view. Right. And the reason why it's a good news story is that there were diligent people in an election commission role that were able to root that out and correct it. Yeah. That's right. a great thing. It, it is a good thing. And the punishments are extremely severe for the folks that get caught doing this. I mean, literally, we are begging people to vote. Because, you know, such a small portion of our uh, society that's eligible actually actually does participate in the democracy. So, I, you know, I don't see the motivation for this massive amount of fraud uh, when we're actually trying to get more people to vote, or at least that's the message that's presented out there. So Yeah, so that's the voting angle of it. I, I do think a lot of it's money. You sure. Know, if it's a private company that that owns this business, they and they don't have these pre-funding requirements, they're going to make a lot of money, and it and it makes me chuckle because it's sort of um, how to make an oligarch Russia style. So you know how do you, how do you make an oligarch? Well, you take something that the public has built, and you give it to a private entity for pennies. That's exactly how they did that. If you wonder where those guys came from. And how they're able to buy their hundred million dollar yachts and have their private jets and their Swiss bank accounts, it's because a massive amount of public assets were transferred to private individuals. And when we talk about selling to the post office or selling off TVA, that is no different. There is no space in between those two things. They are exactly the same thing. 
Right. That's exactly right. We're just creating oligarchs when we do those types of things that were initially set up as part of the social contract to serve the people of the United States, TVA and the United States Post Office. Andy, anything else you'd like to add uh, about the post office today and what's going on? Uh, uh, can we tell folks how to how to put pressure on our legislators to uh, try to increase the amount of people that are eligible to vote by mail? I think First off, I would like to see people support their their clerks and letter carriers in post offices all over the country. They're putting their themselves at risk right now, touching your packages, opening your mailbox when you've opened it, when you might be sick. And to have our elected officials going on television and talking about selling them off, basically, in the middle of a crisis like this, um, when so much of what we're we're ordering and buying and these sorts of things they're delivering. I don't, I, I thank them. Tell them how much you appreciate them. Tell your elected officials how much you appreciate them. And that, and that that is a public service that we all own together. And then also encourage those elected officials to, to trust those employees that they are not going to be party to any kind of a fraud or, or they're, they're going to keep those ballots and tr- uh, secure and treat them uh, with respect and, and actually trust the American citizen and the election commission staff that they're going to do the right thing and make sure that everything is on the up and up. Yeah, that's why it's called the public trust. You're exactly right. And and uh, we've got to restore that, Andy. I mean, even now, and we can kind of transition into the uh, the um, uh, viral COVID-19 emergency now. But, but even now, we have folks that are questioning the experts, questioning epidemiologists who have studied um, viruses for 50 years of their life professionally. But yet we have guy, high school dropouts on Facebook who think that they are, know more about this virus than an expert like that. This is, would you agree this is part of the problem, Andy? I think it is. I think one of the things, we, it affects us because we try to do research and we try to inform ourselves. So it's not an argument against, so saying that they're not experts, right, it's not an argument against informing yourself. So everyone should try to inform themselves. I think in the past, what's different is that in the past, we wouldn't have to come in contact with those people. Right. You, you know, we have a finite circle of, of interactions that we have on a day-to-day basis. But now when one of those people ha- people has a thought, we instantly see it on social media. Right. And so w- people who care about facts and ex- expertise and that sort of thing are faced with a stress <laughs> that they didn't previously have. Right. So it's good to... Keep that in mind. When good information can spread quickly, bad information can also spread quickly. That's another thing uh, to stay on top of and, and keep in mind. I think the reason why people spin up these false narratives is all off the back of an agenda. So an agenda can be at a nation state level, meaning they're trying to change their position on the international stage or gain some sort of an advantage. That's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, individuals also have an agenda. They could want their party to get elected. Now, I think that's silly. I don't know why they care to carry water for a, a lot of rich people they never met, but that's that's just me. But um, on a personal level, take this idea that this outbreak was on purpose. 
Like it's some kind of bioweapon. Well, they want to believe that because they it scares them more that a mammal was stored cl- too close to a bird and humans were walking around in a market. They don't want it to be that simple because right. that's scarier actually than a vast conspiracy that this was done to us. You know, it's, it, it makes them feel more comfortable. Yeah, and, and what's amazing to me is part of the asymmetrical warfare that you and I have talked about from nation states that have been going on against this country for the last 10 or 15 years, one of the main purposes of that disinformation campaign was to get American citizens to question the validity of experts' opinions, to destabilize our institutions, to destabilize our belief in science. Is that so? So when these folks go off on these conspiracy theories that Bill Gates is the Antichrist and he's, he really just wants to sell you a vaccine, when these people go off on these tangents, they're really falling for the real problem in this country, which is they've been brainwashed by a foreign nation state, that it couldn't be as simple as something that originated in nature. It had to be something nefarious coming from those evil people, right, to demonize someone else. Well, it's rooted in ego, not to get too psycho, you know, not to psychoanalyze things too much, but it's rooted in ego, that I am such a big deal, and I'm so (laughs) superior that surely it could not have happened to me accidentally. Nature does not affect me because I am above all that. Right, right. right. It must be some vast conspiracy by a large, powerful nation in order for this to happen to me. And so that's all sort of rooted in people's outsized egos. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's for sure. But when we have 27 intelligence agencies telling us that a foreign country is actually doing that to us, that's an actual fact, right? That's not just something that... Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So anyway, Andy, well, let's, uh, you know, it was six weeks from today that you were on this podcast. And I went back and listened to that podcast again. And uh, the, you said the word, sir, the only way that we're going to come out of this uh, viral uh, COVID-19 health emergency was through surveillance and uh, ubiquitous testing. Is that is that the word that you used, Andy, back then? You said something. I purposely like didn't listen to it, but I'm pretty sure that's what I said. Yeah. I didn't want to cheat and and try to spin what I said then. I wanted it to stand on its own at that time. So I'll have to take your word for it. Well, I wanted to go back and and to look back because I'll have to say that even six weeks ago, my level of of seriousness about this health emergency was much less than it is today. It's only grown as time has gone on uh, where I've gotten more concerned. But we were talking, my point is, is we were talking about testing six weeks ago. Where are we, Andy? Where are we on the testing? I think this is an obvious softball question, but but uh, so let's talk about the testing. Well, I think, you know, people want to politicize this virus, And I think that's a huge mistake. And I think that people from all walks of life and all agendas have been doing that. And I think that's really bad for everyone. I want to know nothing about people's aspirations. I do not want to hear about them trying hard. I want to hear about outcomes, results, metrics, Mm -hmm. 
Right. Until we get to that point where we just sort of brush off all the spin and all the chatter and focus specifically on the outcomes, the results, that's where that's the place where we need to be. So I'll give an example. We have to stop saying that we're going to have 27 million tests by the end of March and then having 2 million. Right. We cannot keep doing that. So, yeah, you, yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, obviously, uh, it's kind of, you know, uh, there's a big push to start the economy back and all of that. You hear these uh, politicians uh, talking about starting the economy back. But isn't the truth that the consumers control the economy and consumers are not going to start the economy back until they feel safe and secure? Yes, they need to feel safe and secure. And so just because someone has the bully pulpit and says, "Okay, now everybody go back to work, they can't control my thoughts and actions just as I cannot control their thoughts and actions. So people have to have a level of confidence. And the way we give them that level of confidence is to use the term ubiquitous testing, ubiquitous, yeah, contact tracing, and PPE. Right. Short right. of a vaccine, those are the three main bullets right there of what it's going to take to build people's confidence back up and get something approaching normal. That will not get you to normal. It will get you something approaching normal while we wait for a vaccine. And what do we mean by ubiquitous testing? So. I try not to talk about my work because I try to keep my personal and my business separate. But for us, when we look at that, at a minimum, we need hundreds of millions of tests and probably billions of tests, meaning to put it in practical terms, that we could test every single American every two weeks. That yeah. that's really need that needs to be the goalpost. That's what we need to be shooting for. Mm -hmm. And you should be able to get that test anywhere. Whether it's from Amazon, you know, like you would get a 23andMe DNA test, whether it would be at your office, at work that your employer is providing, whether you could go up to a drive up facility and get that. So to get this constant testing and then have the ability to trace and quarantine the people who are infected and the people who they have come in contact with. Well, doing that, what it does is it enables everyone else to continue to go on with their life. Mm -hmm. And then for those people that are, that are quarantined or sheltering at home, whatever term you want to use, they can go back to living their life after the two weeks goes by or the three weeks goes by. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, and the PPE is going to limit, limit the spread of the people that are out there in the world interacting with each other. Really, it's a simple formula, but what it requires is for leadership at various levels of not only the government, but corporate America to put that into action. Yes, and I think that the businesses are actually leading that push, Andy. Uh, obviously, they don't want to be operating in a, uh, an environment of elevated risk, which is what uh, they have been in operating under. Uh, last Friday, you may be aware that uh, President Trump uh, reversed the OSHA decision of, of considering COVID-19 as a recordable. Uh, if you are in business and understand safety laws of this country, you know what a recordable is and what how, the liability that presents uh, to 
the business owner, whether it be a large corporation or a small business owner. And so, Andy, I think that the businesses are leading the charge on that and telling the government, hey, we, we can't do anything until you put this testing in there. Is, is that a good interpretation of what we're seeing going on now? Yes, and I think um, – so my company is in the process of, of installing thermal imaging across the company – we're wow. looking we're, we are self-insured because we have so many employees. And so we're looking at our own testing capacity and capabilities. I think the talent, particularly in certain parts of of the working world, the talent will flow to where they feel safe and they will flow away from where they don't feel safe, uh, particularly in, a, in an environment where the employment market is pretty tight. And I think what it means going forward is that every company has to think of itself as a healthcare company going forward. And I think right. that is a, that the, the world has changed, and I think corporate America will change right along with it. And that is the change I see going forward, where health and safety, even in a white collar environment, will be a big deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it already was before this, but even a bigger deal, Andy. I, you know, I think that, uh, um, you know, a lot of folks are, are really looking this over. Uh, responsible business owners understand that their people are their most valuable assets, right? Well, you would think, but let me ask you a question. If you sell insurance and you're selling insurance in an office, that the owner doesn't care about anybody wearing PPE. It's really unclear what the policy is. Were somebody in the office to test positive? Are you going to start looking for a job to sell insurance somewhere else? Yes, of course you are. That's right. completely different than what we would have seen two months ago. Yeah, that's true. That's that is true. And that's one of the things, too, about the economy coming back. There's going to be a lot of folks that are migrating to other jobs. There, it's just we're hitting a big reset right now is what we're doing, I think. But, uh, Andy, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, this terrible tragedy that's unfolding uh, in the nursing homes across the country, across the United States. Uh, we have some estimates of over 5,000 uh, people in nursing homes have passed away from the COVID-19 so far. And um, Andy, will the nursing homes survive uh, this virus? Will they, will, they be, will they be solvent when all of this is done? I think there might be a situation where they, look, we need nursing homes. We have to have them. There's it's just the nature of the way our society is set up. There are plenty of folks that never had kids. Their kids live, you know, 2000 miles away on the other side of the country somewhere. We have to have them. So I think in those cases, we're going to have a sort of a, a super fund situation like what you had with polluters where the pollution was so bad, they became bankrupt but the stuff still needed to get cleaned up. And so we needed to somehow as a society fund a way to go in and clean that up. I think you'll see maybe not exactly that kind of approach. And I know it's a really awful comparison to make, but it's the only one I know to make um, that we, we somehow fund a way to get them back on track. Right. I think the, what you're noticing is that income really matters in a case like this. So your really high-end nursing homes have been doing, generally speaking, a better job at containing the problem. 
because they don't, you know, the, the residents have more of their own personal space. They're able to take more precautions. They're able to source PPE that that's, that's costing more than what it did before and all sort, all sorts of things. But your county retirement home in pick your place, USA, that's, that's going to change. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that that's going to have to change. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see any way around it. I mean, there's just no denying what's going on right now. Uh, even though a lot of those numbers are protected, we're not hearing a lot of stories about this because of the HIPAA laws and their various restrictions on the nursing homes. But um, isn't it true that recently a lot of these nursing home regulations were lifted or reversed? Have you heard anything about that? Yeah, the current administration relaxed the nursing home uh, regulations, which is which is unfortunate. But just like so many other things, they have a lobby, right? Um, you know, and I don't I don't want to say that all all of these companies or even these government agencies that run retirement homes are cut from the same cloth because they're clearly not. Yeah. But you know, when it comes to your parents and your grandparents, I don't think that there can be too much regulation. Mm-hmm. Right. I agree with you, Andy. All right. Let's move on to the next one, Andy. Do you think that do you think the media is overplaying this? Do you think that uh, I mean, every every news station you turn on, every social media ad you see, uh, do you think the media is overplaying this or do you think that um, do you think that they're reporting it about the right level? Well, in fairness to them, what else are they going to report about? Yeah, right. What else is going on? So that's a challenge that they face right now is they, they've got to fill this airtime and they've got to fill the fill the page, right. so to speak. And especially if you're a 24 hour news network, there 24 is a big number. You have to yeah, fill yeah. all those all those hours of the day. So it, it's going to get wall to wall coverage because we're all sort of safer at home right now. So, you know, right. the Yankees aren't playing baseball the you know the draft's going to be virtual in the NFL and on and on and on. So I have to kind of stick up for them on that. They really the in terms of the quantity, they don't really have any other choice. In terms of some of the subtle decisions that they make in terms of what images they use, how they try to frame something, I would say that sometimes that can be out of line. Yeah. It truly can. Sure. I sure. think, but, that, but I, but all media is not created equally. So when I talk to a family member and they tell me they don't trust the media at all anymore, and I ask them, well, how can you say that? Because what you're telling me is a treasured member of our community that has done a, a whole lot of good, like a Phil Williams. Are you lumping Phil Williams into that group? Are you, are you lumping WGNS into that group or the Murfreesboro Post? Surely not. Right. And that's where we go wrong is that if we're lumping in somebody who's not even part of the news, they're a pundit. When we start to lump a Phil Williams or a Jason Reynolds over at the post with a pundit on a cable news network during an hour when they're not even doing news, they're doing entertainment. That's where we go wrong. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this podcast is uh, full of opinions. That's all it is. And a lot of folks have a tough time discerning the difference between an opinion and an actual fact. Right, Andy? And that's really where it comes in. Yeah. 
And so we have a lot of opinions out there, and I think a lot of folks get that mixed up. Andy, uh, in the past, we have talked about technology and the impact on the economy and how the economy was going to be changing in the future. Does this health emergency accelerate technology into our economy and the use of technology into our economy? That's what the analysts and the consultants are telling us. Okay. So you're going to see a situation where the automation of warehouse picking is going to accelerate. It was We've discussed that before, and it had already started, but it's, it's going to accelerate because the demand is so high on those facilities to deliver goods that a human can't work 24 hours a day, but that robot can. Mm-hmm. And so as P, as these retail establishments are not able to be open and people are buying everything online, somebody's got to go and pick that. You know, think mm-hmm. about when you go to a retail store, in, in a lot of respects, you're doing your own picking. Mm-hmm. That's right. You're, you're carrying some of that load to get that good in your hands and get it out the door. So you're going to see a lot of automation on that front. I think as as well, you're going to see a lot of situations where you don't have to worry about social distancing in the workplace if there's no human. That's just the big picture of it. And if there's another shutdown, that robot can keep working. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The other thing is with construction, you're going to see a lot more prefabrication because in a factory environment, you, you know, where you've got the same layout, the same assembly line, you can control if people are getting close to each other. But when you're on a job site, it makes it a bit more difficult to do that because it's sort of freewheeling and it's just open to people moving around however they want. But if you're pouring precast concrete wall panels and stuff like that, that can be not only heavily automated, but you can even paint on the floor where people are supposed to be and where they're not relative to each other. And you can't really do that on a job site where something is being poured in place or or constructed in place. Right. And and just kind of touching on that, I've already seen some uh, reports of some technology uh, that's being used that are like wristbands or armbands. And when you get within six feet of another human being, uh, it starts buzzing, right? And lets you yeah. know immediately that you're too close to that other person. Uh, what about the other way to analyze that too is artificial intelligence. So there are some machine learning technologies that you can use to to watch live video feeds, and it can alert the head office or whoever that those people are too close together just by l- watching and learning. This is a human. This is a human too close to another human, sort of thing. Amazing. That's pretty amazing. Let's talk about the the uh, the food uh, in this country, and in more specifically, like the meat packing plant up in South Dakota that had over 500 cases there, uh, and then ended up closing their other facilities. Uh, it, it, will we ever be able to automate meat processing or produce processing? Will that ever be automated, Andy, or will we always be reliant on human beings to do that? Well, I I don't like to speak in absolutes. I don't want to say it will always rely on humans. All I know is that we are incrementally moving, you know, we're incrementally growing the amount of automation that we have in our food supply chain, whether that's uh, machine control, driving a, a combine or a reaper or a planter or a fertilizer or whatever you want to call it, whether it's 
automated pickers, you know, that you you see online from time to time, that's going to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. And yeah. whether that goes into the meat business or not, I think if you start to move into some of this imitation meat, then you start to have more and more flexibility because that's a manufactured product mm-hmm. from raw materials. So you get more options in terms of if you're having to deal with an animal. Right, right. Andy, let's talk about the global economy for a second. Um, you know, obviously, we've got huge problems here in leading the entire world with this virus. But can folks like you who travel around the world, who sell American products around the world, um, you know, won't we have to be safe everywhere, the entire world, for those types of jobs to resume? I mean, you, you don't want to fly into Wuhan right now, right? Or, or do you? I mean, uh, is it um, – it's not just us, I guess, is what I'm asking. Is it, it, We have to be concerned about the entire uh, population of the entire globe. Uh, well, we you- truly are in this together. That That's the thing. That's not a – people that's not just a platitude like that's that's true yeah. you know we we truly are in this together um we just have to decide i think if we want to be part of that together because the whole world you know we can get on without the rest of the world or they can get on without us i mean that's a deci- we're at, we're at a fork in the road and let me explain what i mean by that it is very difficult for me to sell a good or service go long term in to a client in Toronto if I'm not allowed to travel to Toronto. Right. And we really right. need people I, I think people don't really grasp that that we have to the only way to quote win, whatever we want to call winning, <laughs> is to beat this virus. You cannot separate the public health issue from the economy issue. They are one in the same. They are inextricably linked. And that is just one example. It is going to be extremely difficult for us to export all the great things we make in America if we cannot go to those places where we want to export them to. Yeah, that's that is a very, very good point, And I think it's something that we have to look after. And so does it make any sense because we are the only superpower left in the world for us to who else will fund the world health organization if we don't fund it right and that's really our only way of helping combat this globally is through the who if we don't well it's fund- best and only I, I have a colleague that i've known for years that always uses this term when someone wants to complain about something and that something is the only thing of its kind he calls it best and only so it's sort of like complaining about the sun and saying, gee whiz, the sun is too hot. The sun is ugly. I'm so sick of seeing the sun. Let's yeah. turn it off. Right. Okay, now we've switched off the sun. What are we going to do? It's, right. the best and, uh, it's the best and only star we have in our solar system. So right. right. The WHO yeah. is just like that. It's, yeah. it's sort of like you can criticize it all you want, but there is really no other organization that can replace it at the moment, not instantaneously. So right. why is it important? Well, if another thing like an Ebola pops up, who's going to who's gonna lead the effort to contain it? 30% of the countries in the world have no COVID, official COVID-19 response because they don't have the resources. Right. 
So if there's 30% of the countries where this can just run wild because the WHO is insolvent or underfunded or, you know, however you want to phrase it, what then? What are we going to stand up? And, and again, I, I'm tired of the politics of it and the aspirational nature of it. I want to hear real concrete steps. So, you know what? If you're in charge and you want to say, hey, we're going to defund the WHO. Now, number one, only Congress really has, has the ability to do that. They have the power of the purse, in particular the, in particular the House of Representatives. So first thing, maybe take a constitutional class or something, or even just read the Constitution. That would be a good start. But if you're going to go on a, at the lectern and say, hey, we're going to defund this thing, don't just tell me that you're going to defund it. It would be nice if at the same time you'd tell me what what your alternative is. What are you? What's your plan? Right, exactly. So folks have to realize that our farmers sell soybeans that they grow here to those 30 countries that don't have a plan right now. And so the entire economy is so interconnected uh, that, that we have to look after our customers, so to speak, right? The customers of the exports of the United States, right? So that's really kind of the logic behind that is from an economic standpoint uh, that the party of business should very easily understand. Let's move on to civil liberties, Andy. Let's talk about, there's a lot of talk out there about how uh, these stay-at-home orders are violating people's civil liberties. Let's talk about that for a second real fast. Do you, do you believe it's a violation of civil liberties? And, uh, and, and if so, how? Well, I mean, the gov- let's, we always say this on, on this show. The government is us. Right. So if there's any violating going on, we're doing it to ourselves. <laughs> so right, we, right. people need to keep that in mind. They need to, they need to connect their, their personal actions in their day-to-day life with the government because we are the government. So that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing is I don't know if we're violating our own civil liberties. I think that in a crisis – you have to be careful not to do things that you can't undo or that are harmful. I think the way you should solve it, I think good common sense should dictate that if this thing has got a two week incubation period, but before you even show symptoms and that that's been shown to be the case, you know, that's on the, uh, that's on the outside, right? Um, that it's not the flu. We can't go out here running around without a vaccine, without taking some kind of steps. But if you are a person that feels really strongly that your civil liberties are more important than your own life, I can respect that. And I, I, I don't want to stand in the way of that. But I think what you should do is waive your right to treatment if you want to do that. There's got to be trade-offs. Like, you know, freedom's not free is what they always want to say, right? So great. You can waive your right to treatment and you can go wherever you want. But also, you can also be, you have to pay the piper if you make somebody else sick too, because right. you know, your rights stop at my nose and vice versa. So. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Andy. I mean, uh, your rights, uh, uh, stop where mine starts, so to speak. And, and, uh, or when you start trampling on mine, uh, but, I, but I love it. I mean, Hey, if, if a group of folks want to have a big party right now during the lockdown, just sign the, uh, the agreement that says that I will not be treated and take up hospital space and I will be liable for anyone who wants to sue me. Is that, is that basically what you're saying? 
Yeah, that'd be great. And I see it. I see it happening. But I said the pro- But the problem I have with when I see it happening now is that they're not going to have to sort of own their part of the responsibility. Right. They'll be the first ones to show up at the emergency room when they get sick. Right. Exactly. Oh, correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Because suddenly when real life kicks in, you know, uh, you get out of this esoteric ideological spectrum and suddenly someone that you love is laying on the couch dying. Uh, everything changes, right? It definitely does. And I think, you know, gather together, throw off the yoke of, of this conspiracy or this hoax or whatever you think it is. Be free. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you triggered me when you said conspiracy. Let's go back to Bill Gates. Uh, Bill Gates is really taking a lot of heat. Uh, but Bill Gates partners with some very influential groups around the world uh, to do some really good things. Andy, can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, so I'm a Rotarian. I'm a member of the Murfreesboro Noon Rotary Club, and our our number one cause, we have several, but our number one cause is the eradication of polio. And a lot of people don't realize that polio is still very much a thing. Um, it is a thing in place out-of-the-way places that are deeply impoverished, like Pakistan, Afghanistan, that border area there. There's a couple of spots in Africa where they still have active polio virus. Um, and so what people don't realize is that when you contain a virus like polio, the last hundred cases are going to be more expensive to, to eradicate than probably the first hundred million. I mean, that's not a real stat, but when, once you get down to that level, it's really hard, especially when you've got going into places to do vaccination programs that don't want you there. Mm -hmm. Or if you've got a case like where president Obama, you know, the, the, the intelligence team that tracked down Osama bin Laden, they pose as a vaccination team. So a lot of our workers have been getting killed because of that. And that's uh, something I, I that's something I definitely hold against President Obama and will for the rest of my life. But anyway, so our, one of our main partners is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in, in eradicating polio. And together we have spent $1.6 billion to do that. And he's committed even more money in, in matching funds. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a cause very close to my heart because not only is it a good thing to help people who are less fortunate that are, that are facing something like polio that should have been eradicated years ago, we learn a lot in doing that. So we learn how to contain a virus, how to track it down, how to kill it. And a lot of the stuff that you're seeing right now work is has been informed by the work that, that has been done over the years with other viruses like polio. So I kind of get upset when I see people uh, tearing Bill Gates down for him, really putting his money where his mouth is to try to help people that he's never met, that he will never meet, that are less fortunate than him. And now he wants to help build a, you know, create a vaccine. He's been building facilities so that those uh, that manufacturing can take place in parallel. So whichever one is the one that works, it's ready to go as soon as they say it's the one. Mm-hmm. And you're and we've got people online saying, "Well, I'm not going to take it because he's going to he's got some sort of hidden agenda or whatever." What I say to that, Stephen, is don't take it. You're right. Please yeah. don't take it. I don't want you to do anything you don't want to do. But again, you need to waive your right to treatment, and there needs to be restrictions as, as far as who you can come in contact with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, you know, I absolutely, Andy, I agree. And I think that, that that's really sad that you have an American who has basically lived the American dream, created a business from nothing, became a billionaire off of that business, improved the quality of uh, of all Americans' lives, all of the people of the world's lives have been improved because of what Bill Gates initially invented, and then takes that money and turns around and tries to help people, but yet is subjected to this nonsense, conspiracy, Russian-Chinese-oriented conspiracy theories that somehow Bill Gates is the enemy of the United States citizen. I just, just say, don't, just don't take it. Like, if yeah. you don't... You know, that's more for me. Right, right. I, I understand. Just, well, I'm a little don't bit take more. it. Like I, I just say, I just say, don't take it. And the reason why I say don't take it is because when you're dealing with someone who believes something like that, they're obviously dealing with some kind of a deficit. And I don't know if it's an IQ deficit or a deductive reasoning or comprehension kind of a thing that they've got going on. And I've even seen it from elected officials, right? So it, it, it's sort of around here. And it's sort of the first thing I think is that I'm not concerned about them. So when I, I responded to a local elected official basically perpetuating the conspiracy theory that you're talking about here. And I was approached one-on-one about it and I had to let them know, look, I really don't care about the mental deficits that you're dealing with, but you're in a position of trust. I I responded to you publicly in that way because I want the other people that observe that to read it. Right. So if you right. want to be silly with your life, go ahead. That's your choice. That's right. your choice. But I yeah. can't have you misinforming other people in our community. So I've coined a phrase for these folks, Andy. I'm calling them the NSVs. Natural selection volunteers. That's what they are. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it's it, that's a that's an accurate name for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I that's that's the only thing that I could possibly describe anyone who wants to throw science and data and facts and experts and doctors who have spent their entire life studying these diseases out the door to come up with some crap they saw on Facebook as their logical explanation. I'm sorry, I just can't buy it. And these folks are natural selection volunteers. That's what they are. The po- the folks that marched on Michigan, on the capital of Michigan yesterday, natural selection volunteers. And they're going to find out that this is a real thing, Andy, unfortunately. And that's really sad because it, it don't just cost their families. It costs all of us. Back to your point about us all being in this together, uh, you know, it, 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 we lose one citizen, it hurts our country uh, prematurely, right? I so think it's anyway. just the shell game with the messaging, Stephen. That's yeah. what I want to. Le- I want to leave people with. So they want to say that you're either in this camp or that camp, which is to say that we've all just got to accept the losses and get back to work. You know, we can continue installing brakes at Nissan, just ignore the pile of bodies over there on the floor, just get back to work. The two th- that the world doesn't work that way. That's not the human condition. We have to be able to do both, and we can do both, but we have to have the testing, the contact tracing, and the PPE. Now, you've been done a disservice if you believe, if you accept that you should try to get back to normal without those things. So for me to say we need to shelter a place, that's not a permanent solution. Nobody in their right mind thinks that that's a permanent solution. 
but you need to deliver what we need to get back to work. I want to go back to work, but you need to do your part, leadership, and deliver what it is that we need to get back to work. And I'm not going to absolve you of that responsibility, no matter how hard you try, no matter how often you send the congressmen and women you have in your pocket onto Facebook and to Twitter to try to make us think otherwise. you got to do your job. You cannot spin it. There's no way around it. You have to produce results. Fantastic, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with today? Hey, love on your your professionals. I don't want to say medical professionals. I want to say professionals. You don't have to hug them, but you can social distance and you can tell them how much they mean to you. And I don't mean just the Facebook post. Everybody's got to go to the store every so often right now. Tell that young man or that young woman who's your checker or your your bagger at the grocery store that you appreciate them putting themselves on the line, uh, your medical professionals, your truck drivers that are having a hard time hunting around for a truck stop that's open that's got everything they need just so they can get your stuff there. All of them that are your 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 postman, your your mail lady, <laughs> tell them you care about them. It goes a long way and it's free. That's my message. Absolutely, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Another great interview. Uh, Andy Dick, everyone. I'm Stephen Reynolds, the man in the middle, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Man in the Middle podcast. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Mr. Andy Dickey, for joining us here and sharing those opinions uh, uh, that he has about what's going on in the world today. Folks, we have got a massive challenge. It's still in front of us, but Americans rise to the occasion. And right now, about 75% of us are continuing to rise to the occasion again right now. Our essential workers are deemed so because they are providing the food and the services that our country needs. And so all to all of the essential workers that are out there that are helping this country continue to move forward, we thank you. And for the rest of us, we're going to get back to work soon, folks, but we can't get back until we have the testing We've been talking about it for six weeks on this podcast. It couldn't be a simpler solution. Let's make it happen, America. I'm Stephen Reynolds, your host. I'll see you next week.